into the reality of what God has for you. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And that means we pray perseveringly. We keep coming to God in prayer. There's not a single moment of your life that can't actually be reflexed into in a moment of prayer, in a breathed out prayer of thanksgiving or petition or seeking to know God's will. That's why Paul encourages the Ephesian church. He says you're to be praying at all times in the Holy Spirit with all prayer and supplication and to that end, keep persevering. Keep on praying, okay? So if godly wisdom requires this sort of constant realm of prayer, is prayer primarily an individual thing? And I think in American evangelicalism, we have made prayer a private activity, misunderstanding sometimes the teachings of Jesus, and we've taken that to an extreme. Most of the people that Paul and James and the other biblical writers who had been writing to would have spent most of their time, prayer time, not alone, but in community. Prayer is not primarily, actually, something you do on your own in your morning quiet time, although I commend you to do that. But biblically, prayer is a corporate reality. And so scripture calls us to that kind of a recognition. Uh, James brings it up in this passage in James 5.14. He says, is anyone among you sick? Stay at home alone by yourself. Don't go to church. Don't talk to anybody and pray by yourself. That's not what he says. He says, call the elders of the church to you. Have them pray for you and over you. And yes, anoint you with oil. And we, we certainly have done that for people in our church who have been chronically ill or repetitiously ill or who have facing life-threatening realities. But I think the focus too often in some of our churches is that we focus on, on the oil as if there's some special ritual that's happening and the power is found in the ritual and not in the prayer. And in the prayer in particular of God's people being gathered intentionally to pray through and for and over somebody. And this isn't just something for elders in the church to do or for spiritual leaders to do, but it's something for the church to do. And we know this because Jesus urged us to pray familially. He, prayed, he urged us to pray as a, as a church family. And, and so if you go to Matthew 18, you'll see that Jesus said, Specifically, he's calling two and three of us to agree together on earth. And if we do, he says, whatever you ask will be done for, uh, everything you ask for uh, to your father will be done for you. And he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Do you hear the statement of Jesus when he's calling us to this idea of corporate prayer? And I think that one of the reasons we don't pray is because we're prideful. One of the reasons we don't pray at all is because we don't think we need God. One of the reasons that we don't pray corporately is because we're prideful. We, we think of prayer as a performance. I might say the wrong thing. Somebody might hear me and they might think, well, that was a stupid prayer. That was not something very good to pray for. I can't believe they said that in their prayer life or 
Or maybe we hear somebody that we think is really good at praying, and we think, well, I can't pray like that, so I just won't pray at all. I think that keeps a lot of people from praying together corporately. Yet here's the problem with that. The very idea of corporate prayer is to lead us to a place of humility. (laughs) And we talked about that over the last few weeks as we're looking at James's call to humble ourselves. Prayer should be a humbling place. We should not go before God with a sense of pride. And so to that end, James says this. He says, listen, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Did you guys catch that? It's not just elders who pray for you. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. In the Protestant Reformation, there was a recognition that the idea that there were only special people who were empowered to absolve sins who had been anointed by the church, priests, the idea that was taken away from the church was was this recognition say every Christian is a priest and therefore every one of us should regularly be in the practice of confessing our sins to one another, saying, listen, I'm really struggling with anger. I'm really struggling with, with lust. I'm really struggling with pride. I'm really struggling with my, my coworker. I'm really struggling with my spouse or my kids. And I need your help. I'm really not succeeding and I need other believers to pray for me. And James says, that's what you need to be doing as part of this praying together, recognizing that part of prayer is to lead you to a place where you acknowledge to one another, hey, I need help. I need your help, I need God's help, and I need you to be in prayer for me. And you say, well, you know, doesn't that lead to a place of condemnation and pride and where certain people are looking down on one another? No, the whole point of this kind of prayer is for the restoration of people to God. We should recognize that every one of us is a sinner in need of God's grace, and we should be in the business of praying for one another to be brought back into right relationship with God. I just want to stop you and just ask you for a second. In this last week, how many of you stopped at some point in the week and said, listen, I know my sister, my brother in Christ, that they've probably been struggling with this this week. And so, God, I'm just praying that you would draw close to them and that they would draw close to you, that you would give them a hunger and an appetite for that intimate relationship with you. And maybe if you've seen your brother or sister commit a sin, maybe you're running that record in your head of all the things they've done. Maybe they did something to you or against you. Have you ever thought that maybe the thing you need to do is stop playing that record and start praying for their restoration to God? Start praying for them to be brought back into right relationship with God first and then with you. That's part of how we pray when we pray that God would forgive us as we have forgiven others. James makes it clear that this is part of prayer by including his last words in the entire book. And and he says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
James is not saying that you or I have the power to save someone in the way that Jesus saves us. He's saying that when we remind people of the good news of the gospel, we are calling them back to living in the reality of that relationship with Jesus Christ. We're calling them out of the sin that they've given into, out of their brokenness, out of their pride, and we're calling them back into right relationship with God. And he wants that to be part of our practice of prayer. So we practice the uh, prayer constantly, and we do it corporately. And our attitude should be one of confidence. Many of us approach prayer uh, without really believing that it's doing much. It feels like when I'm praying, the prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and right back down to me, right? Well, James says this, it's the prayer of faith that has power. The prayer of faith is what will save the sick or be used by God to raise up the person from their sick bed. It's the prayer of faith that will bring a person back into right relationship, experiencing God's forgiveness. It's the prayer of faith that brings us into a place where we see God at work. So can I just ask you some questions? Do you believe that God actually wants you to pray? Not generic humans, you. Does he want you to come to him in prayer? Well, think of some of the things we've already seen and studied here in James and how we've seen this pattern repeated over and over again. Go back to James chapter 4, verse 2. James has already said, Why do you not have? Because you do not ask, right? You do not have because you do not ask. God has positioned prayer to be the mechanism by which we draw close to him and he draws close to us. And there is a reality there that we as Christians need to recognize that our God is abundantly gracious. He gives us many things that we don't ask for. He gives us oxygen. He gives us rain. He gives us uh, good jobs. He gives us homes. And there's countless things that we don't ask for. But the ordinary position of the believer should be one of crying out to God for more of his goodness and more of his grace because God wants us to live in constant dependence on him, trusting him to provide completely. You might remember way back in James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, this is what James said, let us ask in faith. Now, specifically, he was talking about asking for wisdom, but think about this connecting now to James 5, when we are to ask God for things in prayer. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Wow, James just came for us, right? How many of us approach prayer without really believing that God is going to be at work? Maybe God didn't answer a prayer that we asked one time. Maybe we prayed many, many times for a lost person that we love to come to Christ and they haven't yet or they didn't at all. Maybe they, they, maybe they passed away and as far as we know, they're, they're not saved. Maybe we, we begged and asked God for a work situation to change or for a family relationship to be healed or a person to experience physical healing and we didn't see that answer. And so when we experience that disappointment, when we don't get what we thought God ought to do, 
that can lead us to a place where we end up living our lives sort of as fake Christians, pseudo-minded Christians, sort of believing in God, but not really believing in God, not trusting that he wants to give us good things. And James is calling us out of that. And he says, listen, when you go to God, understand this, that while he may not answer your prayers the way you want, he is always in the business of answering prayers. You need to go to God trusting in his hand and in his plan and in his way. And There are two truths that I think guide that. What we believe about the nature and character of God matters. Do you believe that God is generous and kind? Do you believe that God is generous and kind? Last week I mentioned this quote that that Charles Spurgeon had, and I I went home and looked it up so I could have more of the context. And, And the quote goes something like this where Spurgeon says, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. Therefore, when you cannot see his hand, you trust his heart. And to the degree that you trust the heart of God is generous and kind towards you, that will impact your prayer life. That's why James, even back when he told us to ask for wisdom, he said, is you, do you believe in a God who gives generously? In chapter 2, he's going to say there's a, a God, that, uh, uh, or, uh, sorry, chapter 1 where he says there's a God that pours down every good and perfect gift that comes down from the Father above. Do you believe in a God who gives generously to all without reproach? Now, I don't know about you, I'm not like that as a dad. I'm not. You know, when my kids were little, they knew that if they asked me like the third time, they were about to get some reproach thrown in. Right? It was not going to go well. Right? But that's not Jesus. He's not in the business of condemning or shaming or, or acting in any way that's in opposition to our goodness. He gives generously to us without condemning us for the things that we are asking for. Jesus put it this way, Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. He says, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? If you, even you, in all of your brokenness and weakness, know how to give generously and kindly and and to give good things, how do you not believe that a God who is perfect in power and goodness and capacity, how do you not believe that he's in the business of giving you that which you actually need and which will satisfy your soul? And that leads us to another belief that we need to have in God. Believe that God has a plan and a way. I think that many of us don't pray Because we don't actually believe that God has a better plan and a better way than the way that we want to live. We think we've got it figured out. We think we know the situation we need to be in. We think we know the way the world ought to work. And if God would just simply ask us, then we could tell him how things ought to go. But that's so foolish, isn't it? We don't control every molecule that holds together. We don't hold matter together by our very words. We didn't create every person in the world. But there's a God that we can go to who does. 
have a plan and a way for all of us. So James has already warned us. You might remember in James 4, 3, he said, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James is not trying to keep you and me from praying in a way that is free and courageous. Rather, he is trying to warn us that prayer should not be narcissistic and selfish. They should not be about us. If you're praying for Jesus to give you a Learjet, it's a bad prayer. Unless that Learjet is specifically needed for some missions trip to evacuate a bunch of people, then maybe you're going to pray for a Learjet, right? I've been on the mission field praying for a Learjet to fly in to evacuate somebody, okay? But in general, that's a bad prayer, right? We don't pray for those things that are about us and benefiting primarily our own passions, our own desires. We pray for God's kingdom to come and for His will to be done. So to give us some assurance, John the Apostle writes these words, this is the confidence that we can have toward God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. Think about that. Think about that amazing promise. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us, we know we have it. Isn't that amazing? Part of prayer, brothers and sisters, is aligning our wills to God's will. It's not all of it, okay? But that's a big part of it. Going to God and saying, I need you to lead me. I need you to teach me. I need you to be at work in and through me. And brothers and sisters, sometimes he's doing things that you and I can't possibly comprehend. You know? Things that we don't even remember or that seem insignificant to us. Just this morning, I woke up early and uh, I was checking some things on my computer and a message popped up on, on Facebook Messenger and a person I haven't heard from in 15 years at all messaged me and uh, I think maybe 16 or 17 years, they messaged me and they said, I don't even know if you remember me. They said, um, but in 2002, you and I were at a conference together and you said this. And they said, and that changed everything for the next 20 years of my ministry. Brothers and sisters, I don't remember that conversation. <laughs> I promise you, there is nothing inside Chris that has any capacity to change somebody's ministry for 20 years. So what does that have to do with prayer? For 20 plus years, it's been my prayer to wake up every single morning. The very first thing I say is, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you. God takes broken people, broken prayers, and he does amazing and powerful things in and through them. Because he has a plan and he has a way. And a lot of times it's stuff that we don't see happening there. So we're to pray confidently in faith, but we're also to pray courageously. James says in verse 16 that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
And to give us an example, he uses the Old Testament story of the prophet Elijah, who has a nature like ours. He's just an ordinary human. That's what James is saying. He's an ordinary human, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Now, that's some amazing power. If you want to read the whole story, go to 1 Kings 17 and 18, and you can read the whole story of what happened there during that time. And then Elijah prays again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What's James trying to say to us? When you and I pray, our prayers have great power to do amazing things. And the reason why is because God is always doing bigger things than we can ask or imagine. God is always doing more than you and I can understand. That's part and parcel of the work of the God or of the universe. He's doing more abundantly than all that we ask or think, the apostle says, according to the power that is at work where? In us. God is doing things bigger than you and I could ask or imagine through each and every one of you who are placing your faith in Him. And it's to His glory in His church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. One of the reasons we don't pray is because we don't actually believe that God is at work in and through us. Our lives seem so ordinary. Our jobs seem so insignificant. Our roles in our families seem so time-consuming and wearying and that we feel like they don't really matter that much. But Jesus would say to you things like this, Truly, truly, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. You're going to be doing the same kind of works that Jesus did and greater works because the expansion of God's kingdom until Jesus returns is through His people, the church. Isn't that amazing that God wants to work in you and through you in this world? So that should be fuel to our prayer life to want to be a part of that work and to participate in it fully and wholly and to cry out to God. And you say, well, what about me? What about me? What about the brokenness in my heart and the needs of my heart? It's fine if God wants to work in and through me for the good and joy of other people, but what about me? Well, God is at work, brothers and sisters, in you for your joy. For your joy, not just for the joy of other people in this world. He wants to bring you and me to a place where we are rejoicing in all of His goodness in this world. Jesus said this in John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So, when you go to God in prayer, while you are never to go to God cockily, pridefully, we're to come in humility, we are to come boldly.
We're to come boldly. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 11 about a man who goes to his neighbor's house and, and in the middle of the night, like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, he starts banging on the neighbor's door saying, hey, wake up. I need some bread for some company I've got. And the request is audacious because he doesn't just ask for bread for his guests. He asks for bread that is sufficient to feed the guest and bread that's sufficient to feed his whole family and bread for leftovers. And Jesus says, the point of the story I'm telling you is this, that though the house owner will not give him, get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, his boldness, he will get up and give him what he needs. And then Jesus says, now that's how you approach me. Come boldly. What would you ask God for if you genuinely felt like there were no limits to what he might answer. What would you ask God for if you thought he would answer something so much bigger than your wildest dreams? C.S. Lewis reminds us that too often we fool around with the small things of this earth when God's wanting to do eternal and cosmic things in and through our lives. So what is it that you could ask God for that would seem so bold, so outrageous that you would know for sure that God alone did it if that prayer were answered? That's the way Jesus wants us to come to him. Finally, James reminds us to pray Christologically. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, this isn't expressly here in this text. It's in the whole book of James, which is why when we read a book, we don't just read isolated verses. We connect all the verses together, right? James has talked about the Lord raising somebody up. He's talked about the reality of faith already in these verses. But if we go back, oh, well, let me explain this word here. Some of you may not know what this word is. Big word, right? Christological, right? What does that mean? It just simply means to be about or centered on the work of Jesus. So when I say pray Christologically, what I'm saying is pray in a way that is about and centered on the work of Jesus. You might remember that James has admonished the church. He said, don't show partiality in church. And then it's easy to just focus on that command and forget the rest of that sentence. He says, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And when James says in James 5 that the Lord will raise up the sick and by implication the Lord will forgive sins, it's Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, that he's talking about. Okay, It's the only Lord that James knows. And so he's saying here that when you pray, you're to pray in such a way that the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, is the object and focus of your prayers. And that means practically that you have to believe that Jesus is in the business of advocating for sinners, representing sinners on their behalf. Well, John... The apostle makes that very clear in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, My little children, I'm writing my book to you 
so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Can I ask you if you maybe don't go to prayer because what you deep down feel inside is unworthy to be present in the presence of a holy God. There is a goodness to that belief. There's a truth to it. Because on your own, none of you, none of us, have any business being there. You know, if I walked up to the gates of the White House, demanded to see the President of the United States, I would be in handcuffs very quickly. I would have no right to be there. But if I was escorted into the White House by, say, the Secretary of State of the United States, I would have a right to be there because I have an advocate who has brought me in to the White House, right? So how do I get into the presence of a holy God? His Son, the one who lived the perfect life that I could not have lived, is there my, there my advocate. He's bringing me into right relationship with the Father. And there's a calling in prayer to trust that Jesus saves and serves sinners. So if you go to Hebrews uh, chapter 7, verse 25, we can see there that Jesus is in some amazing work in and through us in prayer. So the author of Hebrews says this, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Have you ever wondered what Jesus is doing right now in heaven? What's He doing? What's He been doing for 2,000 years? Well, the Bible gives us a number of clues. He, in John 14, He says he, He's going there to prepare a place for us, as Keith Green would say. If it took God seven days to make this earth, and, and uh, whether that's literal or, or metaphorical in its terminology, but He spent 2,000 years making heaven, uh, we're in a bit of a garbage can, is what Keith Green said right now, right? So some of it is He's preparing the new heavens and the new earth, praise God. But guess what else He's doing? He's making intercession, Jesus is praying. And who's he praying for? The people that he has bought with his blood. After he lived that perfect life, he died an atoning death to shed his blood to purchase people, men, women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to bring them into right relationship with the living God, to reconcile them is where the Apostle Paul speaks to this. And then he defeats sin and death and, and all of its power and the dominion of darkness and he destroys all of that so that we can be brought into a forever relationship with God. And he is praying for the outcome of that good news in your life, in your heart, and in your ministry. That's what Jesus is doing. He's interceding on your behalf. Therefore, when you want to draw close to God, you can trust Jesus that he is a sufficient bridge to enable you to draw close to God in prayer. James has already told us, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you, right? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And can I just encourage you in that drawing near? Yes, be bold in your petitions. Be, be 
be courageous and confident in faith and, and ask God to redirect your will and your heart where it's not pleasing to Him. But can I also encourage you to draw near to listen, to hear God's voice. I'm not talking about spinning up records in your head and listening to your own voice. I'm talking about listening to God through His Word, meditating on it prayerfully, reflecting on it, praying it back to God. I'm talking about asking God to show Himself to you. In other words, to listen. In one of the Old Testament books of wisdom, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we are reminded this, that it is better to draw near to listen to God than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So don't let your heart Be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Listen, when you go to Jesus, make sure you're spending time in your prayer life listening to God as he speaks to you through his word. And then cast yourself fully in dependence on him. Depend on him. Hebrews 4.16 says this, We with confidence draw near to the throne of God's grace. Why? So that we can receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. There is no place in the presence of God for people who say, I don't need God. Did you hear what I said? There is no place in the presence of God for people who think they don't need God. But the throne of grace is wide open to everyone who says, I need God's mercy to not get what I do deserve, and I need grace today. I need you to pour out your goodness because I got nothing without you. When we go before God acting like we've got our act together, our will together, our agenda together, and no thank you, God, I can handle this situation, we're rejecting the very heart and posture that brings us into God's presence. Which leads us to this reality. There is no way to pray Christologically without trusting in the Holy Spirit to guide and refine your prayers. You need the Holy Spirit to reshape your prayer life and to intercede for you. Fortunately, that's what the Holy Spirit delights to do. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Most of you know I lived overseas for quite a while as as a missionary, and one of the things that we got to do when we had foreign teams come from the USA or from other places was we got to translate for people uh, into the national language there in Indonesia and stuff. And, and what if there's a translator in the throne room of God? It's the Holy Spirit, and he's taking your prayers, and you say, I don't know what to pray for. This is my best shot at it, God. This is all I've got. This is the groaning of my heart. This is the heartache that I've got. This is my brokenness. This is my weakness. These are my biggest dreams and my, my deepest fears, and I'm just pouring them out to you as I listen to your word. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is taking all of that and shaping that into a beautiful prayer to your Savior and translating that into a a prayer that God will answer and be at work in. And how do we know that? Because Jesus is always at work bringing glory to himself and to his Father in this world.
He will carry out his agenda because that's what he's in the business of doing. Jesus said this in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Isn't that an amazing promise? Well, with that promise in mind, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father God, would you take now the heart cries that are coming up from this room, fears, doubts, weaknesses, brokennesses, big dreams, desires for great and beautiful and good things, desires you've put in our hearts, even distorted desires that have been warped by worldly values or or the brokenness of our flesh. And you are taking them and you are refining them as we entrust ourselves to you as your children. And we acknowledge to you that we have no right to be here except for the grace and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Him that that as we place our faith in Him, our lives are changed and transformed and made new. And we're brought into right relationship with you. We're, We're literally remade. And so now, Father, we ask that you would further that gospel work in each of our hearts and minds, that you would renew us in the hope of the gospel, that where the gospel's not penetrated into portions of our lives, that you would send it there. And that where it's not in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our workplaces, that you would send it there. That you would take us and our our trembling unbeliefs and our fears and we cry out like that father did to your son. I believe, help my unbelief. And with that posture, we come to you crying out for mercy and needing your grace. You know the brokenness the weakness and the fears, you know what you have planned and imagined for us. So we surrender our lives to you anew and afresh, crying out for greater grace and for things bigger than we could ask or imagine to happen in and through each and every person present here today. We ask this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.